0: Our speaker this morning comes to us with a distinguished set of earned credentials. He graduated from Brigham Young University. Before he was called to devote his full time to the work of the Lord, he spent almost twenty years in the field of international banking. His professional and Church service in South America has been extraordinary. Wherever he went, he found the time to assume leadership positions in the branches, wards, and stakes of Zion. He was called to be a member of the first quorum of the Seventy, October 1, 1976. It would be possible for one to enjoy a few deep feelings of satisfaction at least from the record of service in the banking business and in the work of the Lord which Elder Robert E. Wells has compiled. Yet I suspect that he would prefer you remember him as the husband of Helen Wells, the talented pianist who also attended Brigham Young University and who became the mother of his daughters, or as the father of seven wonderful, talented children. If you pressed him a little, he might tell you with a twinkle in his eye that, yes, he is the father of that beautiful BYU co-ed who became Miss America, Charlene Wells. John Locke once wrote... Children are travelers newly arrived in a strange country of which they know nothing. I believe Elder Wells would consider it of highest priority to be remembered as a loving guide for such travelers. He has already shown us by his action that he does not walk away from life challenges in business, in the work of the Lord, and in his own home. We look forward to hearing from Elder Robert E. Wells of the first quorum of the Seventy at this time. Elder Wells.
1: According to my dictionary, the word blessed is a very positive adjective meaning enjoying happiness, enjoying the bliss of heaven, and bringing pleasure or contentment. If these expressions are true, there is an apparent strong contradiction between the blessings we seek in today's success-oriented world and the blessings the Savior refers to in the eight Beatitudes which open the great Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are those who are persecuted. These are startling and attention-grabbing contradictions. Who needs problems if these are blessings? These declarations are not quiet philosophical stars in a summer night. Rather, the Beatitudes of Christ are lightning bolts and thunderclaps of spiritual surprise. Please review them with me as a list of Christ-like attributes we should each seek to develop. The first Beatitude in the Bible says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and the Book of Mormon Version adds, Who come unto me. We can all agree that being poor economically is not usually a desired blessing, but the Savior is talking about something entirely different. He's talking about humility and subjecting oneself to the Lord in all things. The most powerful scripture we have on this attitude is from Mosiah 3, where King Benjamin gives us the definition of an ideal Latter day Saint Become a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. In comparison to the Father from whom all blessings flow, we are indeed poor in spirit. We are spiritual paupers, beggars even, and we must humble ourselves before God in every situation of life. I'd like to use a short version, as I remembered, of the famous Hubie Brown parable, to illustrate submission. When he was young, President Brown, a young married man, had a nice yard in front of his home with a lawn, flowers, shrubs, fruit trees, some big shade trees, and there was a currant bush he had carefully trimmed to an attractive shape and to produce the best fruit. Noticing that the currant bush had started to branch out again, he went for the pruning shears, and as he approached the little currant bush he seemed to hear it say, Oh, please, Mr. Gardener, don't cut me back. I'm just getting started, and I want to be big like the shade trees. President Brown responded, No, my little bush, I'm the gardener here, and I have planted thee to be a source of fruit and an adornment in this part of my garden, and I'm going to prune thee back to size, which he did. Many years later, President Brown was now a full colonel in the Canadian forces in France in World War I. He could see the possibility of an illustrious military career. He wanted to be the first LDS general since the Book of Mormon. He was competent and well-prepared. And the next vacancy as a general should be his. But when the vacancy occurred, he was called in by his superiors and told, We are promoting someone else over you. In effect, they were saying there's never been a Mormon general in His Majesty's royal forces, and there probably never will be. He returned to his quarters, crushed with disappointment, knelt in prayer, asking fervently, Heavenly Father, why couldn't my prayers have been answered? Haven't I lived up to my covenants? Haven't I done everything I was supposed to do? Why? And then he heard a voice, an echo from the past, saying, But I'm the gardener here. You were not intended for what you sought to be. And humbled, President Brown then prayed for humility and patience to endure the pruning and to grow as the Lord would have him grow. I translated that little story for President Brown on a tour of South America, and he told me afterwards, Bob, I know that if I had continued in that other direction I would never have developed the way the Lord wanted me so that I could eventually serve him as an apostle and in the First Presidency. Yes, it is a desired virtue to be able to humble ourselves, to seek out God and come unto him in all humility, and to accept and overcome whatever tribulations and trials and testings that come into our lives. Yes, it is a blessing to become poor in spirit before the Lord. Number two, blessed are all they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I imagine that of all the Beatitudes this would appear at first glance to be the most unusual and contradictory. At the very least, it's a, it's a strong paradox. How can it be a blessing to be in mourning? To mourn is to show grief and pain at the death of a loved one. To mourn is much more profound than just be sad. It's a deep, agonizing, penetrating, intense pain which cannot be hid from the world nor even from God nor it can be eased nor can it be eased nor pacified except with comfort and consolation from god through the holy ghost why then would the savior say it's a blessing to mourn it may be that pain and suffering from the death of loved ones is really an essential and important part of our mortal experience just like our death is inevitable someday There seems to be a maturity that comes and a deeper dimension and more profound understanding when we are left behind. The reality of death obliges us to face the question of the reality of the spirit world and the hope of the resurrection. It is through suffering that one discovers the difference between those things that are important and that which is unimportant in the eternal perspective— It might be that it is a blessing to become more fully aware through the death of a loved one that God's ways are not our ways and that we must trust him in that fact. One of my favorite stories with roots in Islamic traditions illustrates that especially in death we need to look for the hidden purposes of the Lord which, when understood, turn to comfort and blessings. It seems that Moses, being in heaven, wondered about the work of a certain angel who was departing for earth. He asked the angel if he might accompany him on his errand. And the angel responded, Nay, thou wouldst not be able to stand that which thou wouldst see. Moses insisted, so the angel placed a condition. No matter what thou wouldst see, thou must remain silent. Moses agreed, and the two came to earth. They left the borders of dry land, went far out over the sea, even beyond sight of land, where they found some humble fishermen in their boat fishing. The angel, unseen, broke the boards of the keel. The boat sank. The fishermen drowned. Moses started a protest, but the angel declared, Thou must remain silent. Next, they came upon an Arab boy walking through the sands of the desert. Unseen, the angel breathed in the boy's face. His blood froze cold, and he fell to the earth dead. Moses started to protest again, but the angel silenced him. I told thee that thou wouldst not stand what thou wouldst see. Thou must remain silent. And then the two came upon a poor home where lived the widow and her two sons. Their only means of survival was the produce from the small garden, protecting against the wind and the sands of the desert by a tall adobe wall. To Moses' surprise, the angel pushed the wall over, crushing the vines, the melons, the cucumbers which the family so sorely needed. Moses couldn't stand it any longer. He erupted, and the angel silenced him and said, Thou canst go with me no longer. Thou must return. But first, lest thou misjudge Allah who has sent me, I will explain. The fisherman would soon have been captured by a pirate boat approaching over the horizon, Been enslaved, tortured, killed. This way they die in the profession they loved. The Arab boy would soon have fought with another mother's son, killing the latter. This way the second boy lives, and the first dies blood guiltless. The widow, the widow's husband, before he died, hid a fortune in the base of the adobe wall. Now his boys, rebuilding the wall, will find the fortune, invest it wisely, and prosper. But thou didst doubt, thou canst go with me no longer. When we can see the Lord's purposes fulfilled in that which gives us sorrow, the Holy Ghost can give us full consolation, and the Atonement and Resurrection truly become to us the cornerstone of our faith. In the midst of mourning one discovers deeper dimensions of love, friendship, brotherhood. In the midst of mourning one determines if his faith is a social decoration, or is an essential ingredient upon which his whole life is based. It is in the midst of mourning that one discovers the personal closeness of his Heavenly Father and his Savior Jesus Christ and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. As President McKay used to say, man's extremity is God's opportunity. We will be blessed in mourning and be comforted as we reflect on eternal marriage, eternal families, eternal values. Number three, blessed are the meek. In the greatest sermon ever preached, the Savior declared, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To which a modern skeptic has quipped, that would be the only way the meek might get anything. I use that little bit of humor to illustrate that in today's fast-paced, success-oriented world the quality of meekness is not universally admired. We don't usually think of successful executives as being meek, nor can we mentally accept the idea of a successful quarterback on a winning football team being meek. In fact, success in anything seems to involve quite the opposite of meekness. The Webster Dictionary gives two commonly accepted definitions of the word meek. First deficient in courage and spirit and second not strong no way do i want to be looked upon nor can i imagine myself as being deficient in spirit and courage those are negative attributes that i want no part of likewise not strong all my life i've tried to be strong one of my favorite slogans is plan simplify and be strong in the minds of many the term meek means to be submissive passive Mild, retiring, bashful, soft, lowly, placid, etc. The mental image of a meek person is that of a compliant doormat, a Casper Milquitoast, who is so timid and unassertive that he accomplishes nothing, does nothing, seeks nothing, contributes nothing to the world that he lives in. Is this weak interpretation of meekness really what the Savior had in mind? I don't think so. I believe there is another better interpretation of the word meek coming from Spanish. Please allow me to share it with you. I was visiting a huge estancia, a ranch in Argentina, with over 100,000 acres of lush pampa, 20,000 head of cattle on the ranch, over 1,000 head of beautiful horses, some for the gauchos to ride, but most were thoroughbred polo ponies, which they trained and sold all over the world. In the course of the afternoon's conversation, I asked the distinguished estanciero, the, the owner, If we'd see a rodeo where the gauchos would be breaking wild horses like our western cowboys, the owner was aghast. Not on this ranch you won't, was his emphatic answer. We would never break a horse. We don't want to break his spirit. We love these horses. We work patiently with them and train them until they are meek. He used the word manso. He said our meek horses are still full of fire and spirit, but they are obedient and well-trained. He said they lose nothing of their speed or maneuverability. A polo pony has to be the finest horse flesh on the face of the earth. They're lightning fast, superbly maneuverable to follow the run-and-gun type of game which world-class polo is. He said the horse cannot be timid nor afraid of anything, but must be obedient and superbly well-trained. I can see a great spiritual application now in the meaning of manso or meek. I don't feel that the Savior wanted us to be doormats to be walked on. I think he meant that we should be obedient and well-trained. Today we say priesthood broke. You can be strong, enthusiastic, talented, spirited, zealous, and still be meek by being obedient and well-trained. I can seek to be that kind of a meek person and be proud to have that as my goal, obedient and well-trained, and still coexist in the success-oriented world in which we live. number 4. Blessed are all they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. All who hunger and thirst for righteousness are striving to reach higher spiritual planes President McKay said, man is a spiritual being. There is something within him which urges him to rise above himself, to control his environment, to master the body and all things physical, and to live in a higher and a more beautiful world. How many of us are striving for the higher spiritual levels as though we were hungering and thirsting for it? To hunger and thirst for something is to really strive and struggle, work and sacrifice for it. My father-in-law crossed a strip of desert on horseback as a young man long time ago sixty miles with no water. He planned to meet a wagon train coming the other way midway to replenish his water. But the wagon train was delayed a couple of days in starting and he met no one. His tongue swelled up, his throat was parched, the dog died, the horse keeled over. He thought he was going to die. He finally made it, but in listening to the story I can feel the intense agonizing, thirsting desperation for moisture, like even a man held under water gasps for air. The mightiest blessings of the gospel are not for the faint-hearted, lukewarm, coolly rational, theoretical philosopher, nor the intellectually curious. The highest blessings are for those stout-hearted souls who are on a noble quest, a crusade for greater personal righteousness. They hunger and thirst for Righteousness. One of the best facets of this beatitude is that one need not have reached spiritual perfection nor sainthood to receive the blessings that are promised the blessings seem to come from being involved in the search for the higher way when we want to be better when we want to be more pure more virtuous then we are blessed no one should think for a moment though that just wishful thinking without effort is going to produce any blessings But if we develop that hunger and that thirst that is sincere, the door to higher stairs will be opened, and we can then climb them. The blessings are immeasurable. Remember the woman of Samaria at the well? The Savior told her, and it applies to all of us, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. Jesus also said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Hungering and thirsting for a higher spiritual life lifts one above the dark storms of this mortal existence that plagues so many of us. Working and striving to become temple-recommend worthy with the goal of entering those hallowed halls is a soul-satisfying quest with blessings all along the way. Hungering and thirsting to be ready and worthy and prepared to serve a full-time mission and to let your voice sound out as with the trumpet of an angel lifts one to spiritual heights seldom achieved before in the life of a young person. The pathway to perfection is long and narrow, but each step brings rewards, beautiful experiences, and enhanced hope of even greater things to come. The early goals of serving a mission and marriage in the temple sooner replaced with the longer-term goals of raising a family in righteousness and serving valiantly till the end. But at all stages of life, the real goal is righteousness, and everything else takes its place within that all-encompassing arc. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we become increasingly more strict with ourselves. We impose on ourselves higher goals and loftier standards than even our leaders place for us. The Savior talked of higher and more strict laws by saying, Ye have heard, thou shalt not kill. But I say, thou shalt not even be angry with thy brother. And the Savior said, Thou hast heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, thou shalt not even look upon the person of the opposite sex to lust after them, lest thou hast already committed adultery in thine heart. I was much impressed lately with... A friend of mine, Rabbi Silvers, approached to fasting. I would asked him about the traditional Jewish fasts from sunset to sunset, and he said, "In order to make sure we fast 25 hours by the clock, he said it's difficult to know exactly when the sun sets. So we solve that by adding an entire hour." I'm afraid that most Latter Day, well, not, perhaps not most, but some Latter Day Saints shave a few hours off the 24-hour period rather than adding some just to make sure. The difference is in that attitude. The more generous fast offering, the more generous home teaching, rather than just a minimum of one visit per month. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to go beyond the mark, not just barely reach a minimum. Number 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Usually when we think of mercy, we think of the relationship between justice and mercy. We all want the Lord not to judge us with justice. Rather, we seek mercy. None of us want to be punished according to our sins. We all want the Lord to be merciful and to overlook our imperfections and to take into account the efforts we have made and how far we have progressed lately. The Old Testament is full of references about the mercy we hope God will show towards us now and at the day of judgment. But the Savior in the Beatitudes introduces another element. He seems to be talking about us showing mercy in order to obtain mercy from God. The principle here is that we will be judged with the same measure that we apply to others. If we are generous to others, the Lord will be generous with us, he said. If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The master forgave the head servant that owed him ten thousand talents, but that same servant wouldn't even forgive his fellow servant that owed him only one hundred pence. The master, upon finding this out, declared, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion upon thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? The quality of mercy is to temper the strict Severe sentence with generous interpretations and understanding of extenuating circumstances or, like the infinite mercy of God, simply canceling any and all punishment because the person asks for forgiveness and promises to follow Christ. God's mercy seems to come from his unlimited and unconditional love for us. Our mercy towards others should likewise come from our unlimited and unconditional love towards others. Love of this sort doesn't come solely because others deserve our love. This kind of love comes from our serving and sacrificing for them. For example, our Heavenly Father loves us not because we deserve it so much, but because he has given and sacrificed for us. Our Savior Jesus Christ loves us, not because we deserve it, but because He has given so much and sacrificed so much for us. Our parents love us, not because we deserve it, but because they have given so much and sacrificed so much for us. In order for us to love others, we must give and sacrifice for them. The more we give, the more we sacrifice, the more we come to love them and forgive them their weaknesses, and the greater will be our tendency towards mercy. Unfortunately, some young people don't really understand this. When they don't love their parents or brothers and sisters or roommates enough, they tend to think it's because parents or others haven't earned their love or don't deserve it. It's really the other way around. If you don't love someone as much as you should. It's because you have not yet given enough nor sacrificed enough for your parents or that brother or sister or roommate or other. This is why those homes, quote, blessed with a parent suffering from an incurable disease or blessed with a handicapped sibling are so full of love because everyone in the home is serving, giving, sacrificing, and that generates greater love. Just as mercy is a fundamental ingredient in the relationship between God and man, our Savior obviously expects that mercy will be a fundamental ingredient in the relationship between us and our neighbors. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus so loved the world that he gave his life and he suffered for our sins. Oh, what love! What mercy! Can't we find the way, then, to be merciful to all those about us? 6. Blessed are all the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There are two parts to this beatitude. The first part is to really understand what is meant by pure in heart. And the second part is to really understand what is meant by seeing God. In Spanish, the term pure in heart is translated clean of heart, limpios. That is closer to the original Greek text. It means no stains, no dirt, no marks. It's the opposite of dirty. It's a physical interpretation as if talking of clean clothing just laundered. It could also refer to clean water with no contamination. It's used with regard to ceremonial cleanliness after baptism or after leaving the temple. Other interpretations refer to being clean of guilt, clean of bad habits, clean of pollutions. Our English version of pure has a definitely moral or spiritual tone to it. It might be more a matter of integrity or innocence or righteousness. But in either case, pure of heart or clean of heart, we can see that the Christian ideal for us is to be both cleansed by ritual, repentance, obedience, and to be pure of heart in our actions, our words, and our thoughts. From studying the scriptures, one of the strongest interpretations of being pure or clean of heart has to do with sexual purity. Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. An Alma tells us that we will be judged for our actions, our words, and our thoughts. Sexual impurity is rampant in the world we live in and it attacks first in thought, then in word, then in action. The defense against Satan is to control our thoughts, control our words, and control our actions. For this reason the Lord and his servants warn so often and so strenuously against pornographic material of any media. No one can be clean and pure and involved in such staining, tarnishing, corrosive, degenerating influences. It's probable that this beatitude, requiring that we be clean and pure of heart, requires the greatest degree of self-examination of all the beatitudes. And it really means blessed are those whose thoughts are pure and clean and untainted by ulterior motives or conflict of interest or spiritually degrading in any way. This person's heart must be absolutely genuine and sincere. The self-examination must be honest and humbling. All pride, self-gratification must be eliminated. Good works to be seen is not pure motivation. The second and most startling part of this beatitude is the statement, For they shall see God. We are all aware of the similar promises in the scriptures, and we believe that each can have his own dreams and visions and manifestations. My favorite is Doctrine and Covenants 88, verse 68. Sanctify yourselves that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you. But, or and, It shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. There is also the possibility that the word to see means to perceive. In fact, I checked my desk dictionary, and here's what I found. To see, to perceive by the eye, and then it goes on to have experiences of of such as to see army service, or to discover or to come to know, to form a mental picture to visualize in one's mind, to perceive the meaning of or to perceive the importance of something, to be aware of something, to imagine the possibility of something, to call on, to keep company with, and others. Only one definition out of the first ten meant to see by the physical eye. Quote, Therefore in the ordinances thereof the power of godliness is manifest, Without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh, for without this no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. From section eighty-four, I firmly believe that it makes little difference whether the seeing is physical or spiritual. The important part is to commit oneself to a course of purification which will lead us to God through having a more pure or more clean heart remembering always that after we have done all we can do, Christ is really the one who, through his atoning sacrifice, makes us clean before our Heavenly Father. Blessed are all the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. In Spanish, this little beatitude, this beatitude is, a, is different. It says, Blessed are they who seek peace. Now, words, peacemakers versus peace-seekers. The English Book of Mormon Version has more action in the verb. The person is making peace, producing peace, wherever he or she is—the home, the office, the classroom, the neighborhood, the church—making peace all around. The Spanish interpretation would imply that the person seeks peaceful settings, peaceful environments, a lovely garden, beautiful flowers. In this case, although both are admirable, I perhaps like the English version best. I've had two daughters in Israel studying with BYU on semester abroad. In every letter home, they use the word shalom several times. I understand from them that shalom or peace has two principal meanings. The first is as a greeting in which you wish or pray that the person you are addressing may enjoy well being and happiness and tranquility kind of peace. The second is a term describing good personal relations, friendship, and constant goodwill between the people. I've come to the end of my time and not to the end of my talk. Therefore, if you want to read the rest, I'm sure it will be published in the full form. The last of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are they who are persecuted. And let me just make briefly this comment. I don't know where persecution is going to come from in the future, but surely it will. The Savior said, In the world you'll have tribulations. We know that there are wars and rumors of wars, and that there will be all kinds of problems. I don't know if persecution will come from um, not giving the priesthood to women, or not opening the temples, or if it will come from uh, the self-interest lobbies of alcohol and tobacco or or, uh, other vices. I don't know if it will come from people who... uh, uh, have a particular lifestyle the gays or the unmarried that we happen to the unmarried that are living together that we happen to be against i don't know where persecution may yet come from it used to be that the prophets were persecuted just for their testimonies for saying i saw like paul i saw light i heard a voice i don't have enough time to go on but let me close with this last thought the Beatitudes are a formula for a Christ like life. They are a beautiful formula to lift ourselves to a higher level of living. I pray that each and every one of us might truly understand the Beatitudes and the in depth interpretations of them and make them a part of our life. I pray for the Lord's choicest blessings upon each and every one of you in your homes, in your studies, in your church callings and positions. May the Lord bless you as servants of Christ. May the Lord bless you, each and every one, as saints. I pray for these blessings upon you and testify our Heavenly Father is in His heaven. He lives. He loves us. I testify that Jesus the Christ lives, resurrected, glorified, exalted. He stands physically at the head of this Church which bears His name. His spokesman here on the earth is a living prophet, President Benson today. And everything that we teach and preach, the doctrines, the covenants, they're all true. I testify of this humbly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.